unleavened bread. So maybe we should calculate. This is the seventh Sabbath, so that's 49 days. And we're supposed to count 50 to have Pentecost. So if this is 49, can anybody tell me when Pentecost should be? Seems, seems fairly simple, doesn't it, when you break it right down to the basic elements? So tomorrow is Pentecost, and we'll be meeting here at 1 o'clock on our normal Sabbath meeting time, for those of you out on the telephone to know when. You calculate, of course, your time areas, you know, but 1 o'clock our time. A couple of interesting things in the news before we get to a sermon. I think you realize that there are riots going on all over the country uh, the last two and three nights, and a lot is being destroyed uh, because a white policeman put his knee on the neck of a handcuffed black man laying on the ground and left his knee there for eight minutes until the man passed out and then died. So I'm sure you know that story. Uh, but there are people coming into Minneapolis now that they are arresting in these riots who are not from that area. Uh, you would think it would be people from that area that were rioting there and in Atlanta maybe out of sympathy rioting there or somewhere else. But these have been brought in to step up the riots and to make it worse. I read that George Soros is behind of it and has actually paid a lot of the criminals who were released from jail in Chicago because of the virus. Uh, he's paid them to go and stir up rioting more and more wherever possible. And even in Dallas, there was a report that near some of the upscale shops in the downtown area, uh, there were left at least one pile of bricks, just there all piled up to be used to break windows. So there's more going on than just the racial situation. Of course, uh, there should be outrage over that kind of police abuse, and they finally did arrest the guy, uh, finally, uh, on murder charges. So we'll see where that goes. But people are up at arms. And this is a perfect sequel to having been quarantined all this time. People are edgy. They're upset. They're frustrated. They're broke. And then you have an outrageous situation like this one. And was it planned? I don't know. Uh, and all that pent-up emotion comes out. Something else may come along and make it even worse. I think we're in for a long, hot summer. Now, here's another one that I found quite interesting, and I had to think about this one a little bit. Walmart is nearly everywhere, and they just announced that they're going to start selling used clothing. They're going into competition with St. Vincent de Paul and... <laughs> Deseret Industries and uh, what is the, the, the bigger one around the country, Goodwill. 
uh, they're starting to sell used clothes, and a lot of them apparently. Now, where are they going to get these used clothes? Are they going to put big bins outside the Walmart and have a sign that says, We sold you cheap Chinese clothes. Please put your used cheap Chinese clothes in this bin and come on in and we'll sell you some used Chinese clothes. I, I don't know exactly how they're going to market it or where they're going to get all these clothes unless they put up collection bins somewhere and you turn it into them. So instead of them buying cheap clothes from China, they'll get free clothes from you that you've already worn and you'll go in the store and if you're not careful, you'll pick out the same outfit that you just turned in. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, I had a thought about that, though. What if Walmart and its executives and big business as we know it today already knows ahead of time that some of the things Trump has been saying about trade war with China and cutting off some relationship with China and the fact that we are in some ways already at war with China, maybe they know that that supply of clothes from China is going to be cut off. And therefore, they're getting ready ahead of time to have something to sell if they can't get those. I don't know. Just a thought that went through my head. Uh, we'll see how it pans out. But this has never been heard of in America before. Something on this kind of scale with used clothes. I, it's just, it's, it's almost beyond the reality that I can comprehend that they would be headed there unless they know something is coming and that they'll need something to sell. We'll see how that plays out. My daughter and her husband were running a used clothing store down in Chile. Uh, and the way they got their used clothes to sell in Chile was to order them from up here and they would get these great big bales of used clothing that would be shipped from this country to the nation of Chile and then they would put them out on display in their stores. They wound up with three stores for a while. And I suspect that all those South American and Central American countries are probably getting a lot of their clothing and their used clothing the same way. So now... If we can't get cheap Chinese clothes anymore because their economy is imploding and we can't send it to South and Central America anymore, what are they going to wear? If we're wearing the cheap used ones, what are they going to wear? Because their supply will be cut off as well as Walmart sucks every piece of used cloth there is in the country up to sell to Americans. This, this is some weird stuff that's going on. Uh, we need to be aware. Well, on a personal or a small community level here, we're trying to do some things. We were able to purchase uh, four cows and two calves this week. Two of the cows are slated for pretty much immediate hamburger, and, and uh, some may need to grow up. Uh, some, but they'll be 
on their way. So I think that uh, pretty soon now we'll we'll have a meatpacking party. Don't know just when. We'll see how it works out, but uh, we'll be able to get hamburger at probably a third the price of what you pay at bees right now. And the prices there are going to continue to go up. Uh, I read just this morning that a, a man had gone in and bought three tacos for $6 last week. This week he went into the same store, ordered the same three tacos, and it was $16. So the inflation and hyperinflation may be getting started. You can't print trillions of dollars, or at least digitally produce them, without eventually uh, those dollars becoming more and more worthless uh, because there's so many of them, and that's just what happens. It's happened in Germany and Zimbabwe and Venezuela and many other places. It's the same thing that is uh, beginning to occur here. So brace yourselves. Uh, tough times are going to get tougher. So enough of that. I'm asking you a question. I guess this will be the title of the sermon ahead of time for once. What are we up against? What are we up against? If you're up against something, you'd like to know what it is. Is it a wall? Is it something that you'll lean on and it'll fall over? Uh, just from a physical standpoint, you kind of like to know what you're dealing with. If you want to drive through L.A. or Salt Lake City, uh, it's kind of nice to know ahead of time what you're up against in terms of traffic or whatever. So here we sit today. We're here to learn about God. We're here to obey God and serve Him in the best way that we possibly can and hope to be made a part of His kingdom someday. So let's analyze with that goal in mind and that purpose that we have what we're up against in order to achieve what it is that we wish to achieve. We're going back to Genesis 3 to start with, to begin to explore this. Now, God had made Adam and Eve, and this was quite some time after Satan, who was a beautiful, righteous, angelic being, rebelled against God and created havoc in the universe in his rebellion and war. Now, following that, who knows how long, and it doesn't matter, God decided to put, recreate the earth into a habitable place and put man in it. So, it says, as he created, recreated here, it was very good. Everything he made was wonderful and would suit man to a T. Designed perfectly for us to have everything we would possibly need as human beings. So he put Adam and Eve in the garden, created them, and they were naked and not ashamed, and no one was around, and they had no sense of anything bad or evil. They did have what we call the five senses. God made them with those. They could see, they could hear, they could smell, they could touch, they could feel. 
They had all of those, but they had no bad experience with any of those. Everything had been good. So in chapter 3, now the serpent, Satan, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. Now the beasts of the field react by instinct. They do not have creative minds in the same way that we do. I mean, monkeys and ravens can be a bit creative in how they get their food or whatever, but they don't have the capacity to think and to uh, be creative that way that human beings do. But Satan did. He was above the beast of the field, and he had intellect. And with that intellect had come a subtlety, an ability to massage or work things around or cause them to be seen the way he wanted them to be seen, okay? That's what you do when you're subtle. You realize that if you approach somebody straight on with something, they'll probably turn it down, depending on whether it's something that they like or not. But if you're subtle about it, and you approach it from some other direction, and get them to saying, yeah, 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 then you present your main case, and they're already saying yes. And they then say it again. Salesmen know all these techniques. They're taught to be subtle. They're taught in commercials to appeal to your different senses so that whatever is presented is something that appeals to your senses. It looks good, sounds good, whatever. They have that figured out. So this one was subtle. He said to the woman, uh, God has said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Question, right? So he said something she could agree with. Yeah, God did say that. And she kind of repeated it back. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. You're right, Satan. He had her saying yes. Yeah, you're right about that. And then she did add, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she wanted to be in the know. <laughs> she wanted to be able to explain what she knew. And aren't we all that way? Somebody says something, and we'll have an answer, because we want to chime in with what we know. And that's the way conversations work. So he asked the leading question. She said, yes, you're right. And he also told us this. See how smart I am? Now, she didn't understand what she was doing because she had no subtlety. She had no evil. She was very innocent. But she had the desire to be a part of the conversation and to answer the question, and to be a good little girl. Because that's all she knew. The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Die sounds bad. And she didn't want to die. 
So he countered by saying, you won't die. Now, God had told her she would. But here's somebody else telling her you won't. Now, who are you going to listen to? Given that situation, who will you listen to? The one that says you will or the one that says you won't? You can listen to Bill Gates one day and listen to him another day. He says you take my vaccine and you won't die. Next day you see an interview by Bill Gates and he'll say we need to reduce the population. Can we think across those two lines? (laughs) You know? You won't die. For God knows better than that. God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now here he appeals both emotionally and intellectually to her. He diverts it from death to another condition, that as of knowing good from evil. Well, she wanted to know good. Now, I think, and I think it may be being demonstrated here, that we do, in a sense, have a sixth sense. You've heard about that, and the people have tried to kind of define what that might be, other than the sensory things we feel are know by our organs. But here he's appealing to her intellect, reasoning with her. That you'll, you'll know good and you'll know evil. Well, that sounds good. So she heard that. And it's diverted from the death issue. You'll be as God. You'll be like God. Oh, wow, well, I met God and He was neat. He was great. He made this garden for us and He put everything in here for us. And we had really good talks together. And I like God. I would like to be like God. Satan's using that reasoning on her. You can be like God. Satan's using that reasoning on the whole world, starting back here. And now in the end time, he's going to convince the whole world that he is God and they can be like him. He's already convinced a lot of people, including most of our politicians, that they should be like him. And don't they act a lot like him? And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, so he had appealed to her eye, when she touched it probably to her touch, She could sense that it would probably taste good. And it would also make you wise, smart, like God. Wow. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And she didn't gag. Must have tasted pretty good. And gave to her husband with her. And she said to him at that point, Here, Adam, try it. It really tastes good. It looked good, it felt good, and now it tastes good. And he said, oh, I want some. And he took of it as well. 
the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made aprons. In other words, a sense of shame came upon them. And all kinds of thoughts of evil began to occur. And then they began to blame one another for the problem. You can't blame yourself, because who wants to blame self? We spend a lot of our lifetime, brethren, defending ourselves. Somebody says something negative, we'll try to come back with an answer to show, no, I'm not like that at all, I'm like this. You're misreading me, you're misperceiving me, I'm not like that. We defend the self immediately. It's just automatic, isn't it? Self-defense comes so fast because of our minds and the way that they are. So, we have to recognize that God gave us the very nature of Satan. I hope we grasp and realize that. From the time we draw our first breath until we die, we have the very nature of Satan the devil. He was egotistical, he was selfish, he was vain, he was proud. He wanted what he wanted. He wanted power, he wanted control, he wanted adoration, he wanted worship, he wanted to be accepted, he wanted to be liked by the other angels and by the third that followed him. Everything that he saw that appealed to him, he wanted. Now, aren't we the same way? If I see something that I like, I want it. If I feel something that feels good, I want it. If I smell something that smells good, I want it. Stick your nose in the refrigerator. Pull that dish out from the back of the refrigerator, the one with the green mold on it, and sniff it and look at it, and you don't want it. But if you look at the front, and there's a nice fresh steak just bought that would smell really, really good on a grill, you want it. You see ice cream. I want it. You taste it. You want it. So anything that tastes good, we just want. And you have a memory. If you ever tasted it, you'll want it again. If you ever saw it, you'll want to look at it again. If you ever heard it and it sounded good, hear a song, you like that song, you want to hear it again. You may go buy it so you can hear it again. Anything that any of your five senses perceive as something pleasant to you, you want. Anything that your five senses perceive to you that you wouldn't like, you don't want. Whether it's the moldy stuff, or bad music, or a metal file across your skin, whatever it is, you won't want it. 
So we're kind of built in with anything that appeals to our senses we want. And that intellect that God gave us, that spirit in man which makes our mind above that of the animals, also wants to be satisfied. And that may be, in that sense, the sixth sense is the ability to think and to create and to uh, apply logic appeals to us as well. People are really excited about knowledge sometimes. Science comes up with something new or there's a new discovery. They want to know all about it. They want to know how it works. And they learn those things. A lot of old people hate computers. But if you grew up on a computer now in the last 20, 30 years, you love them and you know how to work them for the most part. Some do, some don't, but uh, I mean, it's a, it's a society now that has those things which, I mean, I never had any desire to know how a computer worked. My sons do. And they get into them and they can know exactly what makes them tick and what doesn't and what makes them work and they can fix them. I could shoot it is about the best I could do. And about the best I want to do, because it doesn't, they do not appeal to my type of intellect, okay? I'm not a truly technical-minded person. I don't care what makes it work. I just want it to work. Nelson cares what makes it work. So he explains all this stuff to me. This doesn't mean a thing to me. I don't care how it works. Just make it work. <laughs> all that matters to me. I'm glad he's here. I'm glad he has that type of intellect sometimes. Not always, but most of the time. <laughs> and he probably gets frustrated with me because I don't care. I just want it to work. So my mind in that sense, and that part of my intellect is maybe simple. Okay, I'm a simpleton. I just don't care about some things. Well, we're all some mix of that. There are some things you care a great deal about and some things you could care less about. And there will all be different things for all of us because we're all different. But he appealed to Eve's intellect. Now when I tell you you have the nature of Satan, maybe you have trouble believing that unless you've read Jeremiah 7, which I'm about to do. Let's see what God says about it, not just what I say. Jeremiah 7, verse 22. No, that's not... 17, 9. I, was, I, my, I get my memory scriptures on the, messed up. Um, now I can't even find it. You know what it says. Your mind is deceitful and desperately wicked. About 17.9, isn't it? I know that one almost as well as any. But then I couldn't say it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
not just sort of bad, but desperately wicked is what the human heart is, the human mind. Desperately wicked. What do desperate people do? <laughs> you know? It isn't just kind of bad. You're not a mixture of evil and good, or good and evil, as they try to tell you sometimes. We are evil to the core. We do try to learn things that help us get along in society, and there's some Bible involved in it. But even Gentiles, it says, come up with certain things that they know they cannot do, because if they do, their society will fall apart, and they'll wind up killing each other and all be dead. So even Gentiles without the book realize out of self-preservation there are certain things they better follow or they're going to have real trouble. But God says we're deceitful and desperately wicked and he says of the human heart, who can know it? I the eternal search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So God himself ponders us and what we are and what we will be. Because he knows human nature and he knows Satan who rebelled and is evil all the way through. Let's get another one in the New Testament, Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind is just a normal, meaty, human, fleshly mind. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. As a normal human being, your mind is enmity against God in all of his ways and all of his laws. And you can't please God in that state. It can't be done. Satan cannot please God at this point. He would have to have a total transformation. Now, why would a loving God give us the very mind and nature of Satan the devil? It's really a quite simple reason. Satan was created in the same condition that Adam and Eve were. He was created without subtlety, without rancor, without hate without murder, without anything against God and peace in the universe. He was totally peaceful and loving. Until at some point, somehow, some way, vanity and ego began to creep into his mind and he began to think, I'm as good as God. No, I'm better than God. And it went from there and got worse and worse until there was a war in heaven over who would rule. Now, God wants a peaceful universe. He wants one where there is total security and peace and happiness and joy. 
and all those things that we as human beings desire but have trouble finding. Satan has deceived the whole world. Look at the world out there. What do you see? Any society you can pick, anywhere, what do you see? You see lying and cheating and pride and murder and adultery and fornication and drug misuse, food misuse, alcohol misuse. You see people fighting and fussing and fuming. Now you can see people walking down the street, going from store to store, and everything appears peaceful. Well, not Minneapolis tonight, but generally speaking, things appear peaceful, and those appear to be good people. And you can talk to somebody in the food line and uh, have a pleasant little conversation or a joke or two, and everything seems to be fine. They seem to be happy, and everything's going all right. Some of them. But if you get to talking to some people, you will find they have family problems. They have all kinds of difficulties. They have drug abuse in their family. They have alcoholism. They have uh, wife beating or husband beating or all kinds of things. Uh, fathers abusing their children, abusing their stepchildren. On and on it goes. You, any family that you get to know, you're going to find problems in. Because it is a world full of problems. And we have this veneer of respectability or civility, but have this happen or that happen, and suddenly all of that goes away. People go three without three meals. All that goes away. And they're ready to kill each other for food. Because that's the way human beings work. Now, God gave us the nature, deceitful, desperately wicked, of Satan. And he intends that we live with that for 60, 70, 80, 90 years. That we live with it. And it isn't pleasant. It isn't good. Look at the world. And what a mess it is. And people you know. And what a mess they are. And it's yourself. And what a mess you are. Because we all are contrary by nature to God's ways. Let's pick up one more in Galatians 6. We all know this one. But I told you to look at the world around you. Let's see if we can uh, look into it right here. For Galatians 5, he's talking about church people here. In verse 14, he tells them, the people of Galatia, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, being a human being who is created with a selfish nature, that is a very, very difficult thing to accomplish. 
you'll nearly always put yourself ahead of somebody else when the tacks are down. That's just the way we are. He says, but if, church members, you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. You can tear each other down. You can tear each other up. You can discourage each other. You can hurt each other, offend each other. These things come so natural. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What is the lust of the flesh? It is a composite of your senses. If you didn't see something, hear something, feel something, touch something, hear something that you liked, you wouldn't lust for it. You wouldn't desire it. But when you see something or feel something you like, it automatically creates a desire. Now, if it's something that's legal, that can be a right desire, and you can have that stake. But if it's something that's illegal that God says you can't have, and you go through one of those five sensories, uh, and one of them says, yeah, but it's illegal, now you got a problem because it created lust. Lust is an illegal desire. For something legal that you might desire, that's not lust, that's proper desire. It's perfectly okay. If it's something you're not supposed to have, and one of your senses desire it, then that creates an emotion that is an illegal, illegal emotion, and that can be summed up in the word lust. Let's go on down and see that. For the spirit, we could say desires, okay? Lust sounds like something a dirty old man has at a porn show. So let's not use that. Let's put desire in there. For the flesh desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. The spirit and the flesh are contrary to each other. They don't look at things the same way at all. We look at it from a human desire standpoint, based on one of the five senses, or maybe the six, the intellect. Whereas the Spirit of God looks at things from His viewpoint, and those things which produce wonderful lives, and happiness, and joy, and security. You want happiness, joy, peace, and security, but sometimes your senses tell you you're going to get it in a different way than God says it should come. So you may go after something knowing that's wrong, but I want it anyway. Because that's the way the human mind works. It wants what it wants, and it can justify in so many ways having what it desires. And illegal desires, there are a lot of illegal things, aren't there? There's just a lot of things that produce bad results. And sometimes the thing itself is not wrong. Alcohol is not wrong. Some drugs may not even be wrong. 
some of the herbs and so on that God created. Might not really be wrong. Sex isn't wrong. Food isn't wrong. Air isn't wrong. Those things are not wrong of and by themselves. It's just outside the regulations that God designed that they become wrong. So, desire for alcohol is not a bad desire. Desire for a boatload of it becomes a wrong desire. So it's the use to which it is put sometimes that makes something bad. It's not the thing itself. It's the overuse or the misuse that makes it bad. And the spirit and the flesh are contrary. So you can't do the things that you would. Now, a lot of times, us being educated are like Paul. He knew what things were good, and he knew what things were bad. But he said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. He was fighting a battle, a struggle every day to think and do what he ought to as opposed to what his body told him he wanted, which was quite often contrary to God. So he says, if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the penalty of the law. You're not going to die for it if you're led by the Spirit. And then he explains what the flesh of and by itself does. Flesh equals, if you will. Here's what flesh is. The works of the flesh are manifest. And they are manifest all around us in this society today and have been since Adam and Eve first began sinning. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness of any type, lawlessness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. Do you see any of these things around you in the world? They're everywhere. Emulation, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, sedition, heresy, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If you live after the flesh and do the things of the flesh, which are normal and natural to you, they're just normal and natural. They come so easily. That looks good. That smells good. That sounds good. That feel, Oh, that feels good. Whatever it is, it will trigger a desire. And then you have to sort out very quickly, is that a legal or an illegal desire? If it's legal, go for it. If it's illegal, back off. Okay, take something that can be illegal or illegal, like alcohol. Okay, I desire cold beer. All right, have one. Depending on the circumstances, have two or three. I don't know. Everybody's limit's different. Some people can smell a bottle and get drunk. 
because their senses react. Somebody told me the other day that they, they can drink, oh, it was somebody was telling me they can drink apple cider and get drunk, start getting high. It has no alcohol in it. But there's past stuff there that had alcohol in it and would make you drunk. So something that bubbles like beer could have a mental and emotional effect in some way. So it's not wrong to have the beer or how many ever your personal limit is. If you haven't eaten in three days, one beer is probably more than enough. If you have a full stomach, depending on your size, body weight, and your experience, one or two or three might be. Forty-three is not. Or wherever you start getting out of control and doing other things that you shouldn't do because your resistance has been lowered. There are a lot of people who do things when they're drunk that they wouldn't do if they were sober. And same about getting high on drugs. They'll do things that they just wouldn't do otherwise. But this is natural. This is the way. Human flesh reacts to any one of the five senses and that leads you somewhere either legal or illegal good or bad and you have to be aware of that but that's the way it works everybody that's ever been born that's the way their mind works how long does it take a child to learn the attitude mind They may not even say mine yet, but they can sure snatch something, and the attitude is mine. Is that the attitude of God? No, that's the attitude of Satan. The whole universe is mine, God, and I'm taking it. I'm not sharing with you anymore. That's his whole attitude. You come out of the womb like that. You're uncomfortable. The air doesn't feel good. You haven't ever breathed. It feels funny. You haven't ever been smacked on the behind. That hurt. And suddenly you have a lack of desire for anything around you, and you start wailing like a newborn baby. Hmm. Because the sense of self has been disturbed. And we're selfish ever after. It starts right then. Sometimes even before. Did you ever kick your mama before you were ever born? Yeah. <laughs> Was it mean? I don't know. But she kicked anyway. That's just the way we are. We need to come to understand, comprehend, and believe that. That's what we're up against. Now, he goes on and explains, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against these there isn't any law. There's nothing illegal, nothing bad about them. Of those things we just read, how much of those do you see around you? 
Not very much. Not very much. And you find within yourself then a fight going on because the works of the flesh are what you normally want to have. And the fruit of the Spirit you have to struggle for and ask God to give you faith. Ask Him to give you love. Ask Him to give you patience. Give me patience, Lord, and give it to me now. You know. You struggle to have the fruit of the Spirit. It isn't easy. Works of the flesh, they come easy to anybody, anywhere. They're just there. Ready to be acted upon. All right. Through history of the Old Testament, beginning with Adam and Eve and ending with Noah's flood, you had a land that got worse and worse and worse by the day until nobody thought of anything but violence and murder and mayhem and everything contrary to the Spirit of God. And that continued. God called a very few individuals who would obey him out of billions of people. And even they struggled. Abraham struggled with faith. David struggled, struggled with Bathsheba and other things. And he got where he liked to kill way too much. And God didn't let him build a temple because he was bloodthirsty. So even the men of God there in the Old Testament had their problems, all of them. Job was so good, he got self-righteous about it and thought he was about as good as God. He was certainly better than anybody around him. So he had to learn some very hard, painful, and bitter lessons. So everybody has struggled up till the New Testament. Then we have on Pentecost the coming of God's Spirit. He said he would send a comforter to the disciples. John 14, verse 16, 26. And the Strong's definition of comforter is intercessor, or, uh, I wrote it down, or consoler, to console. So God sent His Spirit to intercede between this division of the flesh and the Spirit to intercede for us, to plead for us, and also to console us when we mess up in that divide between the flesh and the Spirit, which is pretty common. So he sent some help. Now, you would think things would become a whole lot better than they were in the Old Testament, uh, you could see evidence of the Spirit, like with Stephen, who was filled with the Spirit of God, gave a very powerful sermon against uh, the evil people around him, and got stoned for his trouble, because he got in their face. And they would not accept what he had to say. They defended themselves, and they justified killing him because he was telling the truth that they would not accept. And I think that the Father and the Son were sitting on the edge of their seats, watching Stephen and seeing how, by their spirit, a human being could be different than what they were used to observing. 
by his spirit, we can be transformed. We can be changed. We can begin to walk in the spirit instead of the flesh. It's a slow transition. It's a difficult transition because you've been going by your senses, which told you to be selfish all your life. And now God says, by my spirit, I want you to become unselfish and love everybody else as much as you love yourself. And treat them as nicely and sweetly and lovingly as you treat yourself. Now, we like our senses to be taken care of, don't we? If we feel too cold, we don't like it. If we feel too hot, we don't like it. If we see something that is repulsive to us, we don't like it. But if we see something that looks good to us, oh, we want it. So we have this struggle going on to either accept things that are bad or take something that is good and take it to the point it becomes bad. And the struggle goes on. But God saw some success in the New Testament, didn't he? After that powerful demonstration on Pentecost, people began to be converted by the thousands and began to follow God's ways by the thousands. And things were looking better. Now, it wasn't too long, however, before the initial emotion and inertia of seeing and hearing good things of God, people began bogged to get bogged down again by their very nature, which was still there and had not changed. A change goes on in the mind by the conversion through the Spirit of God, but all those things of the flesh are still there because you're still flesh. And that will not go away as long as you are human. You will still be flesh and human. And you will still have a tendency to react in a human way instead of a godly way. That's just the way he wired us. And he did it on purpose so that we might come to hate the way we are. We need to come to hate the works of the flesh. To see what they cause. Look at all these marriages out here that are gone wrong. And all the children without father and mother. Or father or mother. Or two guys or two girls for mothers and fathers. or All of them. Crap that goes on and destroys lives. It's all around us. Many of us have experienced some of these things. We know. We understand. And it's a fight. But God wants us to experience this so that having lived it, having struggled with it, having tried to do right, when every fiber of our being wanted us to do wrong. When He transforms us into spirit, we will have had this experience back here and never want to go back to the way we were. There was a song that got very popular, The Way We Were. 
the romance started out really, really good. And the way they were was wonderful. And then whatever happened, happened, and something else happened, and something else happened, and things weren't so happy anymore. So they were singing about the song about the way we were before all this came up. Now, God wants to give us all this first. First. How many people will get married if they had every bad experience they were ever going to have while they dated? Not very many. So, they put their best foot forward and try to please each other. And things are nice, so let's get married. And then somewhere after that, on the honeymoon or whenever, trouble starts. And then life is full of trouble. And kids come along. And that ain't easy either. There's nothing easy about trying to live and have everything right in a bad world with a bad nature. So God gives us all the bad first. He did it the other way with Satan, didn't he? He created him as a wonderful being who had no problems. And somewhere along the line then, trouble started. So with you and me, instead of like two people who meet and start getting along, he gives us all the bad stuff first. Human nature from the moment we're born till the day we die, we have human nature. And it ain't pretty. He wants us to get sick and tired of it. He wants us to realize that that is not the way to go. Broken homes, murders, uh, you name it. It's all so bad. People dying of AIDS because of sin. And, you know, on and on. We experience that first in this life. And then we would never want to go back there. And you know what he does then? He transforms you into spirit. And he takes away the evil side of our nature and gives us a nature that is always upward. It never wants to go down. It never wants to go the wrong way. I can't imagine it. I've always been this way. I can't imagine my nature being where I would never want to do anything wrong. That there would be nothing I could touch or see or feel or taste that would lead me a wrong way. I can't imagine it. Never experienced it. But God says it's true. That you'll never ever want to do anything bad again. And... If the thought even went faintly through your mind, you have all this experience back here that you lived through, and you would say, no, never again do I want to go through that. How many of you would like to go through another divorce? It's about what I thought. Nobody. How many ever want to go through a miscarriage or an abortion? Nobody. How many would like to have their house burglarized again? I can't 
No, nobody. We don't want these things. But the whole world does them to each other all the time. Now, God wants you and I to have suffered enough down here and gone through enough tribulation and enough difficulty that we would never, ever think of or dream of going back to this state again. So he lays the bat on us and says, struggle with yourself and do good in spite of yourself. That's the best that any of us are ever going to do is to do good in spite of ourselves. And I pray that way a lot of times. God, forgive me in spite of myself. Because the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. So I have to go to Him and say, forgive me. For I've sinned, and I am a sinner. And repent of being one. Now people a lot of times think, I need to... I need to repent of what I did. No. Yeah, yeah, that too. But you need to repent more of what you are than what you did. It is what you are that made you did what you did. It is our very nature that causes us to do what we did. So it's not my overt sin that is the problem. It's my mind, it's my heart that's the problem. i got to repent of being the way I am. Help me be different, Father, so I don't do that again. Fill me with your Spirit so that I can overcome what I did because now I'm walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Yesterday, I was obviously walking in the flesh. And tomorrow, I will again if I don't repent of what I am, which is what causes it. See, that's when you're baptized. You're supposed to repent of what you are so that your mind is transformed. It no longer thinks fleshly like it did. Now, that's the ideal, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But it's a long, lifetime process of conversion. You are not, any one of you here, converted. None of us are converted. We are partially converted. We are partially changed. We are partially transformed. And every day, we try to get a little more converted, changed from the way we were and the way we still are. Because it's a lifetime process, and I will guarantee you, when you breathe your last breath, you will not have fully accomplished it and become completely converted, so that you only think in the Spirit and act in the Spirit. Nobody will achieve that. But you will have overcome enough that God will transform you just like that in the spirit. And suddenly you will have no more evil desires, no more selfishness. You'll have a mind that automatically wants to do right. Your mind now 
sometimes wants to do right so you can get something you want. But that ultimately is selfish. I'll do good if you'll give me this. Put a carrot in front of me, I'll go there. But that isn't your nature. Your nature is selfish. You want what you want, and a human being, left alone, will get it any way he can get it. And that's what human beings do. Politicians make a fine art of it once they get up there where they have the power and the money to do what they want to do. Their nature becomes even rawer because it's less contained and has more opportunity. So human beings will be just as bad as conditions will allow them, generally. That's why parents have such a struggle having a child not be spoiled and nasty and mean and rebellious and selfish. Because that nature is pretty raw when they're little. And you have to teach them to be kind and gentle and sweet and loving. Now, sometimes they are just that way. There is that part of our nature that can be sweet. But what drives us is the flesh, is what drives us. But we have to have a lot of learned behavior. And parents have that struggle to teach their child to be what he ought to be instead of what he wants to be. And I have that struggle with God trying to be what he wants me to be instead of what I wants to be. It's an eternal struggle. I'm about out of time. Let's get something good here before we go away. Um, Ephesians 2. You has he quickened who were dead to trespasses and sins. You are going to die because of your trespasses and sins. You're as good as dead. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan manipulates us from the very beginning, just as he did Adam and Eve. <coughs> very subtle, very powerful. He can influence us in a heartbeat. Just that easy. We fight against not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, satanic, demonic beings. That's who we fight against. And we have the same nature Satan does. Therefore, we're two peas in a pod. And it's so easy for him to influence us because our natures are the same. Birds of a feather flock together. So it's easy for humans to go Satan's way. Our nature is contrary to God's way, so we find it very, very difficult to go God's way. It's set up this way. We need to know what we're up against. This is it. He still works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conduct in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, <coughs> fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, intellect as well. There's another key. Maybe there's five physical senses, the lusts of the flesh, but the mind, the intellect, is 
something else apart from it. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. When you're angry, how easy is it to get peaceful? It's a struggle, isn't it? When you're peaceful, how long does it take to get angry? Instant. It doesn't take long to get angry. But it sure takes a while to get over it sometimes. The, 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 the nature is contrary. Children of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, has quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's given us this goal and this opportunity to be part of the heavenly family. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God gives us faith, and he gives us grace, unmerited pardon. So here we are, having been created evil and destructive, and he tells us, don't be that way, be different. And he sent Christ to die for our sins so that his blood might be shed instead of ours, and that through that we don't have to pay for our sins with our death, but he paid for all our sins with his death, his life being worth more than all of ours combined by far. So God gives us a way out from this. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that he just spoke to us about in chapter 2, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here I was a Jew, and a sinner, and a murderer, and by the grace of God, he's forgiven me and allowed me to teach peace to the Gentiles. What a transformation. See what God can do? What he did with Paul, he can do with you. What he did with Stephen, he can do with you. What he has done with anybody, he can do with each one of us. And he's going to. If we hang in there. Verse 9, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Christ. There's a mystery. Herbert Armstrong wrote about the mystery of the ages, that he could take this physical, rotten, human nature and flesh and transform it not only into indestructible spirit with no pain, but never even a bad thought again. Never even a bad thought again. What a mystery. It is to you and me because it's hard for us to grasp. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. He reveals only to the church 
the wisdom, the plan, the purpose of God. Not to anyone else. They don't get it. They don't understand it. It's still a mystery. And so now we look to the principalities and powers in God's heaven at His throne instead of the fallen principalities and powers that are trying to prevent us from being among God's people, God's creation. We got a battle against holy angels and evil angels, against Satan and God. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Now, I've told you a lot about you today, and you didn't like it. We don't like to hear it. We don't like to examine what we really are and face it. But let's do. Because we know there's a way out of it. And we can approach the Father in heaven through Christ with confidence and faith and boldness. Remember Hebrews? Paul said there, God takes no pleasure in them who shrink back, but that those who come boldly to the throne of grace. He knows what we are, brethren. We can't fool Him. We know what we are. We can't fool ourselves. Yeah, some of the time. And we know the answer is in Emmanuel the King. So he says, I put you there with good in mind. I put you there to be part of my kingdom someday. That's why you are here. So God has great confidence and hope for you. Yeah, even you and me, even me. He has great hope and confidence we're going to make it. And therefore, he says, don't shrink back. And don't be sniveling and cowardly and turning over and peeing on yourself all the time when you try to approach me. I am God, and Christ is my Son, and He lived perfectly on that earth, and He never made a mistake so that you could be part of the kingdom of God. So recognize what you are and how evil by nature you are, and then come to me with power and boldness and confidence and faith that you might be forgiven and loved and changed into spirit, which is God's intent. Do we still have part of that old Protestant or Catholic teaching that God's going to get you for that? And so we come, oh my, I've been so bad, I've been so bad. Well, yeah, we do need to feel bad about what we've done, yes. But overall, we should not come to God in a cowardly fashion. He knows what you did. He knew what you were going to do before you ever did it. He saw that first look. He saw that first feel. He saw that first smell. Whatever it was, and He knew you. And he knew how you'd respond. So when you did, you need to come to him and say, I don't want to be like me. I want to be like you. Give me forgiveness, 
confidence, hope, love, and faith that I will be part of the kingdom of God someday. Don't cower before God. Fall on your knees and worship God and give great thanksgiving and rejoicing that He's bringing you through this crap bowl down here and letting you experience it and imbibe of it and suffer for it so that you'd never want to go back there again and then give you the good. What a wonderful, beautiful plan that He has made that through much tribulation enter into life so that you would never want to go back to this. You're going to marry Christ. Do you want that to end up in divorce? No, you went through two or three or five back here. You're tired of that. That wasn't any fun. No, I want this one to work. I'm going to do everything in my power, which is God's power, to make it work. Because there's a lot of good in the future. Don't look at the bad and cower and snivel before God. Come boldly before the throne of grace and be forgiven and be loved and be brought forward to the kingdom of God. All right. We've examined it. We know what we're up against. And it isn't pretty. But we've also seen briefly here at the end that we have a lot of help and a lot of encouragement and a lot of grace and a lot of forgiveness and a lot of encouragement from our Father and His Son, our Redeemer, our Savior, our hope, our King, our Husband. They want us there. And because you go through trouble here, don't think God doesn't want you. Because you sin here, don't think God doesn't want you. He wants every sinner on this earth. And there's some pretty bad ones. And before it's all done, they're all going to have a chance at salvation. And most of them are going to accept it. Through the millennium and the great white throne judgment. He's given you someone, or not someone, but something to comfort you, to console you, to intercede for you. And that's the Spirit of God, because sometimes you don't even know what to say. You don't even know what to pray. Sometimes you don't even feel like praying because you feel so rejected, so forlorn, so frustrated by your attitudes and sins, that you don't even know what to say. How do I pray? What do I do? Go to God in faith, confidence, and boldness. And say, I know you made me this way. I'm not blaming you. You did for a reason. And I'm fighting against what I am, and I need your help. Give me grace. Give me hope. Give me forgiveness in a time of need. So, we understand what we're up against. And now we know what to do about it.